Father, we thank You that You sent Your Son into the world to suffer and to die and to rise again. Oh, Father, we pray that we might understand the things of God, that we might not be controlled or shaped by the things of man, but by the things of God. We pray that You would open our minds and our hearts to receive Your truth today, that we might be transformed by this glorious Gospel of grace, the Gospel of Christ, our Lord and Savior. This we pray in His name. Amen. This is really the most pivotal passage in Mark's Gospel. It's really the turning point in Mark's Gospel. The whole of Mark's Gospel has been building to this point where we come to understand who Jesus is. Is. It really started back in chapter 1 where the demon said, what do you have to do with us? Have you come to destroy us? That is, who is this man who's doing battle with the demons? Then the crowds took it up. Uh, later in chapter 1, they say, what is this? A new teaching, a new authority. Who is this man that he can teach like this? The religious leaders, of course, were greatly offended by him. In chapter 2, they asked, Why does he talk like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Why does he eat and drink with sinners? Why does he not keep the rules of the Sabbath? Uh, In chapter 4, after he calms the storm with his disciples on the boat, they say, who is this man? Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? When he goes to his hometown at the beginning of chapter 6, the crowds ask, where did he get all of this from? Where did these teachings come? come from? Isn't this the carpenter's son? See, again and again in Mark's Gospel, the question of Jesus' identity has been asked. And this is really the turning point in Mark's Gospel here in chapter 8 because we finally get an answer. Jesus asks His disciples what the crowds are saying. And then He asks the disciples for their view. And Peter answers the question. He answers the question rightly. He says, Jesus, You are the Christ. So that question of Jesus' identity is now settled. We move on to the next question, which is, what does it mean for Jesus to be the Christ? And as soon as Jesus starts to unpack this, He surprises, even shocks His disciples because He explains He will be a crucified Christ. He tells them what He will do and indeed what will be done to Him when He goes to Jerusalem. Now this whole notion of a crucified Christ This is, to the disciples, a contradiction in terms. Uh, Peter and the other disciples certainly expected Jesus to go to Jerusalem, but they expected Him to go to Jerusalem to sit on a throne, not to hang on a cross. Oh, perhaps they expected there would be crosses. Perhaps Jesus would crucify His enemies. Perhaps that's how He would show the Romans that He's now really the one in charge. But they didn't expect Him to be crucified. They expected Him to march on Jerusalem as conqueror, not as victim. Indeed, to their minds, if Jesus winds up dead, that's the end. That's the end of the dream. It means Jesus wasn't really the One. He wasn't the Messiah. He wasn't the Christ after all. Indeed, there were several others who claimed to be Christ uh, around the time of Jesus, both before and after uh, the days of Jesus' earthly ministry. And all of them made great predictions of victory. How they would win the victory. They would free the Israelite nation. 
in a way, they would become a Jewish Caesar, a new world emperor. And yet, as soon as Jesus starts to talk about what it means to be the Christ, He talks about rejection and suffering and dying. See, at this point, the disciples know that Jesus is a king. They've figured out that much, but they're clueless as to what that means. They have a fleshly way of reasoning, a worldly understanding of kingship. Now, we don't want to repeat the mistakes of the disciples. We want to learn from the mistakes of the disciples. So let's examine this passage. I think the setting here is really, really important. If you look at verse 27, you see that this whole discussion takes place in Caesarea Philippi. God is the architect of history. He providentially rules over everything. So for some particular reason, He wanted this discussion to take place in this particular place and orchestrated events accordingly. Why does this take place in Caesarea Philippi? Well, Caesarea Philippi was a town about 20 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. It was basically on the far northern border of the Holy Land, the land of Israel. It was on the, so you could say it was on the edge of Gentile territory, where, where Jewish and Gentile territory meet. Augustus Caesar gave this area to Herod the Great, about 20 B.C. Then later, Herod's son Philip ruled over this area, and indeed, he's the one who built up the city, and he's the one who named it Caesarea Philippi. The Caesarea part after Caesar Augustus, who had gifted this territory to uh, the family of Herod. And of course, Philip after himself, because he was, after all, the one who built the city. But this is what I think is so interesting about that name, Caesarea Philippi. The name represents the two kingdoms who will oppose Jesus. Caesar's kingdom and Herod's kingdom. A kingdom of the Gentiles and the kingdom of the Jews. Their way of ruling is going to stand in sharp contrast with the way Jesus will rule. So how ironic is it that at a city named after the Gentile emperor and the Jewish ruler, Caesarea Philippi, Jesus talks about true rule, true kingship. Caesar and Philip, they represent one kind of rule, one way of ruling. Jesus is going to sharply contrast with that. He's going to present a different vision of kingship. Now, Peter goes on here to confess that Jesus is the Christ. We know that already. He gets an A-plus for his answer. He's figured out that much. But as soon as he makes this confession, Jesus begins to explain that being the Christ means he will suffer and die. And here, Peter flunks out of the class because he tries to rebuke Jesus. Here, uh, the, the, the student, the disciple, takes on the teacher, the master, and tries to correct him, which, of course, is a big mistake. Look at how this unfolds. Verse 31, right after Peter confesses Jesus is the Christ, that is, he's the Messiah, the anointed king, Jesus begins to, begins to openly teach that the Son of Man must suffer. He must suffer many things. He must be rejected by the elders and scribes and priests and be killed. And after three days, rise again. Now, it would be interesting to look at why Jesus moves from being called the Christ, as Peter identifies him, to calling himself the Son of Man. That would be interesting. Maybe we'll come back and talk about that further on. I want to focus on something else here. That word, must. Why does Jesus say the Son of Man must Suffer. Why the must? I think that must is so crucial. See, as Jesus sees it, His coming death is absolutely certain. 
That is to say, Jesus sees His coming death as part of a preordained divine plan. God has decreed for history to unfold in this way, and Jesus knows it. See, at this point when Jesus talks about why He must die, the disciples don't really have a clue. Later they're going to figure it out. Why must He die? Why this must? Well, we can answer that question in a variety of ways. We could give historical reasons why He must die. He must die because He's going to come into ever greater conflict, ever sharper conflict with the Jewish authorities. And His alternative vision for Israel and for the kingdom will provoke them. It will provoke them to commit the ultimate act of treachery and murder. See, Jesus must die because He embodies a way of life that contradicts human pride. He must die because He's going to run afoul of the Jewish authorities. The Jesus we meet in Mark's Gospel is eminently crucifiable. You know, we think, why would a nice guy like Jesus have so many enemies and, and end up crucified? How could that even happen? Well, it happens because again and again and again, Jesus challenges and indeed subverts the powers that be. He makes the wrong people angry. We see that as early as the second chapter of Mark's Gospel. They're already plotting His death. He must die because He subverts the leadership of Israel. He challenges them with a different vision for Israel, a different way of being Israel. But if we drill down even deeper, we can get theological reasons why He must die. Again, the disciples don't understand this yet, but it will become clear to them soon enough and they'll write a bunch of letters about it in the rest of the New Testament. Jesus must die because He came for this purpose. He came to be the Savior. He came to rescue His people from their sins. And His death will accomplish God's plan of salvation. We are sinners. And because we are sinners, we deserve death. We deserve God's wrath. God is holy. God is light. God can have nothing to do with the works of darkness and those who practice them. The holy God cannot have fellowship with sinful humanity. Indeed, we deserve death. We deserve God's wrath. But Jesus comes and as the Son of Man, as the new Adam, He comes as one of us, like us in every way except for sin. He comes as the Christ, the anointed one, anointed to be our representative. And what does He do as this Son of Man, as the Christ? He stands in our place. And as our substitute, He takes our death. The death we deserve. The wrath and curse due to us for our sin. At the cross, Jesus says, My life for yours. You deserve this death, this wrath, this curse. I will take it on Myself. See, the, the cross, Jesus wants His disciples to know even here, the cross is not going to be some kind of cosmic accident when it happens. No, it's God's design. Indeed, God will use the historical injustice of Jesus' death to accomplish His eternal plan of salvation. See what happens on the cross? The righteous lays down His life for the unrighteous. The holy gives Himself for His unholy people in order to make us holy. It is 
the bridegroom laying down his life for his bride to win her, to rescue her. See, God is a God of justice. He must punish sin. There's that word must. God is a God of justice. He must punish sin. But God is also a God of love. He must have a redeemed people for Himself. And so Jesus must die. He must die to satisfy God's holy wrath against our sin and to fulfill God's loving purposes for the creation. That's why He must Die. The cross is how God will deal with the sin of the world. How He will be just and the justifier of those who put their faith in Jesus. Jesus is going to be rejected by the world for the world in order to save the world. That's how the cross works. That's what it's all about. And indeed, I think there's at least one more way we can answer this question. Why must He die? There are historical reasons. There are theological reasons. There are also, we could say, prophetic reasons. Typological reasons. Why must Jesus die? Because again and again, God has shown this is how the story goes. The story God is telling, the story God has woven into the very fabric of the creation, this is how the story goes. The death of Jesus indeed has been prophesied in story after story in the Old Testament Scripture. Story after story points to it. It's the story of Cain murdering Abel because Abel was more righteous. It's the story of Joseph being hated by his brothers and left for dead before they sold him into slavery. It's the story of Ezekiel and Jeremiah suffering with and for the city of Jerusalem as the Israelites are taken into exile. It's the story of King Saul seeking to kill David in a jealous rage, forcing David to flee into exile in the wilderness. It's the story of Psalm 118. We sing Psalm 118 during the season of Lent. Uh, in, in Psalm 118, Jesus, when Jesus says here in Mark 8 that the Son of Man must be rejected, that is echoing the language of Psalm 118. Psalm 118 says, the stone the builders reject will become the chief cornerstone in God's new temple. The stone the builders reject, that is, the leaders of the nation will reject God's chosen one. And in rejecting Him, He's actually made to be the chief cornerstone in the new temple that God will build. Psalm 118 points us to this. It's the story of the suffering servant in Isaiah, especially Isaiah 53. Isaiah says the Lord's servant must suffer many things. There it is. It's, it's prophesied in the Scripture. It's the story of the sacrificial system where clean animals without spot or blemish die for the sins of the nation day after day, year after year. See, the whole of the Old Testament is a series of death stories where the righteous die at the hands of the wicked, where the righteous suffer for the sake of their righteousness. This is prophesied again and again and again. Why must He die? Because this is the way the story goes. The story God's been telling all along. But note here, the musts don't end with His death. He must also rise again after three days. And again, if we ask why must He rise, we can get the same kinds of answers. 
He must rise for historical reasons. God must reverse the verdict passed against Jesus, His Son. He cannot abandon His Holy One to the grave. The earthly condemnation of this innocent man must be overcome by a heavenly vindication. God simply can't leave His Holy One to decay in the ground. He must rise for theological reasons. God's plan of redemption for the creation would be thwarted unless Jesus rose from the dead bodily. Because see, His bodily resurrection is the first fruits. It points us to a greater resurrection harvest still to come where all of His people will be raised up in glory and indeed there will be a cosmic resurrection. The whole cosmos will be renewed and transfigured and glorified. And indeed, we could say Jesus must rise for prophetic reasons, for typological reasons, because again, this is the way the story goes. Think of Abraham who took his son Isaac, his only son, his beloved son, up on Mount Moriah to sacrifice his son. And what happens? On the third day, Abraham receives him back figuratively from the dead as God provides a ram to be sacrificed instead. It's the story of Jonah who was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. It's the story of Hosea. Hosea says the dead and exiled nation of Israel will be restored and revived on the third day. It's the story of the animal sacrifices just as the animals were killed in the sacrificial system. So then they were glorified and resurrected into smoke that ascended into God's heavenly presence, becoming part of God's glory cloud. See, His death is certain. He must die. But His resurrection is certain too. He must rise again on the third day. Now, I don't even think Peter and the others heard this about the resurrection. All they hear is Jesus talking about suffering many things, being rejected, and dying and they know they don't like it. They figure if Jesus is going to suffer and die, what's going to happen with us as His followers? We're probably going to suffer and die too. But the thing is, they're certain Jesus is the Christ. And they just can't imagine a suffering Christ, a suffering Son of Man. If Jesus is the Christ, He must be visibly victorious. There's no way He can suffer. No way He can suffer on a cross. Peter doesn't... Get it. Peter's thinking right now, if Jesus ends up crucified, that means the Romans win. And so Peter takes Jesus aside. He at least has the decency to do this in private. He begins to rebuke Jesus. He might think, oh, well, Jesus, your problem is you're just misinterpreting the Old Testament. Here, let me show you what it actually says. Or he might be thinking that uh, Jesus just flat out misunderstands God's plan. Or you might be thinking that Jesus is being way too pessimistic. Maybe Jesus has had a momentary failure of faith. And here, Jesus, let me encourage you and remind you how it's all going to go. But Jesus isn't having any of it. Peter rebukes Jesus. Jesus rebukes Peter. Indeed, he says, get behind me, Satan. Here in just a matter of a few verses, Peter goes from confessing apostle to satanic tempter. He goes from being the one who gives the right answer on the theology exam to one who is called Satan. 
Yeah, why is Peter identified with Satan here? That's pretty strong language for Jesus to use of one of his disciples. Peter is identified with Satan here because he is putting the same stumbling block before Jesus that Satan did in the wilderness. What is the satanic temptation? It's the temptation to seek life without dying. To seek glory without suffering. It's the temptation to seek a kingdom without a cross. To get to the mountaintop without having to pass through the dark valley. See, Peter here is tempting Jesus to leave the pathway that leads to the cross. He's tempting Jesus to leave the path that leads to the cross. Indeed, maybe we can even go one step further and add to this something from Mark 4. Remember in Mark chapter 4, we have the parable of the sower. And Jesus Himself is the sower who sows the seed of the Word, the Word of His Gospel. But Jesus tells us in that parable that Satan comes and snatches the seed away. Well, really, that's what's happening here. Here, Satan is acting through Peter to snatch away the word of the cross. Satan tempted Jesus directly in the wilderness. Now he's tempting Jesus indirectly. The temptation comes from one of his closest friends, one of his confidants. It comes from Peter himself. Peter is sort of like Frodo offering the ring of power to Gandalf or, or to Galadriel. And of course, Jesus resists this temptation. But Peter doesn't know what he's doing here. He does not realize he's actually opposing the purposes of God. He's opposing the mission of the Son of Man. And to do that is to put himself on Satan's side. He's clueless. All he knows is that Jesus is the Christ and that his own kingdom plans don't include suffering the way Jesus has described. So Jesus identifies Peter with Satan as Satan. But I think the rest of what Jesus says to Peter here has been misunderstood. So let me explain this to you. What Jesus says really is something like, come behind me, Satan. Or it, it, Jesus, It's usually translated in our Bibles, get behind me, like Jesus is saying, get away from me. Really, it's more like Jesus says, fall in line behind me. The key phrase in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the sentence here by Jesus is, behind me. That's the same phrase that was used back in chapter 1, verse 17, when Jesus called Peter to be a disciple. And He said, come behind me. That is, come follow me. Indeed, it's the same phrase used in the very next verse where Jesus says, whoever desires to come behind me. That is, whoever desires to follow after me. Get this. Jesus is not saying to Peter, look, you're satanic. Go away and don't come back. That's not the way Jesus deals with His disciples even when they're at their worst. Rather, it's more like this. Jesus says to Peter, look, Peter, you are thinking like Satan in tempting me to leave the way of the cross. You need to repent and get back behind me. Get back where you belong. Behind me. Following me as my disciple. Coming after me in the way of the cross. That's more what Jesus says here. It's not go away. It's get back behind me. Get back where you belong. Yeah, what Jesus says is a rebuke to Peter. He does call him Satan. 
But it's also a command for Peter to get back in his proper place as a disciple, following Jesus in the way of the Lord. Even if it is the way of suffering. Peter's already heard that language of getting behind Jesus. Now he hears it again. Jesus then identifies the problem. And this also is key. This is really key to the whole thing. The problem is Peter has in mind the things of men, not the things of God. Now this really is the whole point. This is where you see just how radical the kingdom vision of Jesus is and how Jesus is turning everything upside down and inside out. It's the upside down, inside out kingdom. In this verse, what are the things of man? And what are the things of God? Well, the things of man really correspond to Peter's kingdom vision. The things of man include things like might, rule, power, glory, domination, especially dominating enemies, health, wealth, and prosperity without pain, a life of comfort and ease as you rule over everything, a life without a cross. In fact, if anything, it's crucifying enemies. That's the things of man Peter has in mind. But now let me take you one step further. What are the things of God in this path? What are the things of God, the things Jesus has in mind, the things Jesus talks about? Things like suffering, humiliation, service, being killed. Those aren't things we typically associate with God when we think about who God is. But those are the things of God here. Do you see what Jesus has done? He's making the cross a thing of God. The cross is a thing of God. At Calvary, the cross becomes part of God's own identity. He is the cruciform God. The crucified God. The God whose life is cross-shaped. The cross will become part of God's story. Indeed, this is how we're to identify God now. The Godhood of God. God's very way of being God. God's way of being King is revealed on the cross. When God does His God thing, when God reveals Himself most fully to us, where is He? He's in the man Jesus hanging on a tree. That's God's ultimate self-revelation. See what's coming? Do you see what's coming? At the cross, the God-man will suffer and die in order to redeem us from sin and bring us into His kingdom. God's way of being God is revealed at the cross. This is the way of the Lord that Mark's been talking about all along. It's the way of service. It's the way of sacrifice. It's the way of self-giving love. It's the way of self-denial. It's the way of humiliation. It is the way of the cross. Jesus is God in the flesh. Well, how is Jesus going to show everybody that He's really the God-man, that He's God in the flesh? He is going to reveal His deity and He is going to reveal His kingship by dying. 
The things of God include His suffering, His rejection, His death. He will win His victory on the cross. He will win by dying. He will rule by dying. This is why this whole thing is taking place in Caesarea Philippi. you got the way Caesar rules and the way the, the, the family of Herod rules. How is Jesus going to rule? They lord it over their subjects. They boss people around. They throw their weight around. And they use their power to serve their own interests. But Jesus is going to show a different way of being king. He's going to be enthroned on a cross. He's going to rule by dying. True kingship. True dominion, true might, true power is shown in serving others sacrificially. It's shown in self-giving love. Now, the disciples, I don't think they should have been as shocked by this as they were. Again, this was foreshadowed in all kinds of ways in the Old Testament Scriptures. You think about who is the great king of the Old Testament. It's David. David is the anointed one. He's a Christ figure, the preeminent Christ figure in the Old Testament. And indeed, David identifies himself as son of man in Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you should visit him? David's a Christ figure. He's a son of man figure. But what's the primary characteristic of David's rule? Well, just read the Psalms and you'll see. You know, how does David express his, his authority? Where does his royalty come to expression? David rules by writing these prayers. He rules by writing these songs for God's people to sing. Psalms we, songs we know as the song. And in those prayer songs, in those royal songs in the Psalter, what do we find? We find David, yes, is a king, but he's a king who rules through suffering. You start reading in the Psalms and you find again and again and again, David is constantly facing down enemies who want to inflict unjust suffering on him. And so David in the Psalter continually has to cry out things like, How long, O Lord? How long will I suffer this way? How long will I be rejected by men? He has to cry out things like, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those are the words of the King. See, who is Jesus? Jesus is the greater David. He's the greater Son of Man. Because He's not just Son of Man, He's also Son of God. And what is Jesus going to do in His death? He's going to reveal Himself to us. He's going to reveal God to us. He's going to reveal His kingdom to us. And indeed, He's going to reveal how His disciples ought to live as well because disciples ought to become like their teacher. We're called to imitate this way of life, this way of rule. See, Peter has the wrong view of the Son of Man. He has the wrong view of what it means for Jesus to be the Christ. He's got the wrong view of the kingdom. Which means he's got the wrong view of God. He doesn't even understand who God is. But his mistake is so easy for us to repeat. To think that the things of God, you know, if God was really on my side, every day would be better than the next. And my life would be a life of prosperity and comfort and ease. And I wouldn't have to do hard things or suffer. I mean, what happens every time we start to suffer, we immediately ask, where are you, God? Well, look, our God is a God who takes His own medicine, you might say. 
He is a God acquainted with suffering. See, if you really want to understand the things of God, you have to understand the cross. You have to understand the cross. Our view of God has to be shaped by the narrative of Jesus which culminates with His death on that tree. Let me tell you a little story that makes this point. Uh, the Scottish Presbyterian theologian Thomas Torrance, I think he was really one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century, wrote some wonderful uh, books on the Trinity especially. Uh, but, but before he became a great theologian, uh, he, was, uh, he served in World War II. And he served as a chaplain and a stretcher carrier. And so he, he dealt a lot with men who were, uh, who were dying, who were in their last moments. Well, he tells the story uh, of a private Phillips. This is in 1944. This is after a particularly fierce battle. And he encounters this dying soldier who's about 20 years old named Private Phillips. And Private Phillips, the soldier, was near the end. It was obvious he was going to die. He was laid out on the ground. He was, he was about to bleed to death. But he was eager for spiritual comfort as he passed away. Torrance leaned down to hear what he was whispering. And Phillips whispered in Torrance's ear, Father, is God really like Jesus? Pastor, is God really like Jesus? And Torrance says without hesitation, yes. God is like Jesus. And Torrance takes that story really as describing and defining the whole mission of the church, which is to get the word out to the world. God is like Jesus. Because there's nothing more comforting than knowing that. Torrance says, look, it's not like there's some other God lurking behind Jesus' back who's different than that. No, when God wanted to reveal Himself to us, when He wanted to do His God thing, for all to see. What did He do? He went to the cross. Jesus, the crucified one, is God's self-revelation. The cross is God's self-revelation. I put it to you this way, it's like Michael Ramsey, the one-time Archbishop of Canterbury, said. He said, God is Christ-like and in Him is no unchrist-likeness at all. With God, what you see in Jesus is what you get. And so if you, see, you know, if you see the Jesus of the Gospels and you see Him going around healing people, serving people, showing compassion to people, and then ultimately dying on a cross for His people, and you say, you know, it would be really nice to have a king like that. It would be really nice to have a God like that, a God who loves and serves in that way. Well, there's good news. <laughs> there's good news. That Jesus hanging on the cross is your God. That is what God is like. The cross is a window onto the heart of God. If you want to know God's character, if you want to know how God lives, how God reigns, if you want to know the things of God, look to the cross. Now Jesus goes on to say, not only will he die on a cross, but he says his followers must take up crosses as well. And if we really get down to it, why did Peter not like Jesus talking about his suffering? Because Peter knew that if Jesus is going to suffer, he's going to have to suffer as well. And Peter didn't want to suffer. 
Jesus says his disciples must take up their crosses and follow him as well. What does Jesus mean by that? We're going to come talk, come back and talk about this more later on. But I just want to get into it a little bit here as we wrap this up this morning. When Jesus speaks of taking up the cross, what he means is we must renounce all claims to self-sufficiency, self-fulfillment, self-rule. We must trust in Jesus. We must imitate Jesus. We must exercise power like Jesus. You know, sometimes people talk about, oh, I've got this cross to bear, and by that they're, you know, they're talking about the burdens or the difficulties of life, things like a leaky roof or a cranky boss. And I'm not saying those aren't crosses that God brings into our lives. They're part of life in this fallen world. They're, uh, they're, they're forms of cross-bearing to be sure. But that's not the main thing Jesus is talking about. The cross is an instrument of death. The cross means you must die. Your old self must die. Your sin must die. Your self-absorption, your, your, your being consumed with yourself must die. Indeed, Jesus says you must deny yourself. Okay, that word deny, that's a word Peter's going to become real familiar with later in the Gospel because it's the same word used later in Mark's Gospel where Peter denies that he even knows Jesus. Peter says, I do not even recognize that man. I don't know that man. That's Peter's denial. Well, Jesus is saying that's what you've got to do with yourself. You have to say of yourself, I don't recognize that man. I don't know that man. His desires, how he would want to do things, I'm not familiar with that. I don't know that man. What I know is this man, Jesus, and how he lives, and that's how I'm going to seek to live now. See, what we see, the way denial language is used here, and then later when, when Peter denies Jesus, in the end, you either deny yourself or you deny Jesus. You either say, hey, I don't know myself, and so I'm going to live Jesus' way. I want His life to be expressed through me. Not my own wishes and desires, but His desires. Or you can say, no, I don't know Jesus. And so I'm just living for myself. You deny Jesus, you can live your way. Those are the only two options we have. To deny yourself means to take Jesus as your exemplar for all of life, your model, your template. Now, it doesn't mean a life of asceticism. Sometimes that's uh, how this is understood. It doesn't mean you can't enjoy the things of God's creation. Jesus certainly enjoyed the things God's world has to offer, came eating and drinking. But what it does mean is that you seek to submit the whole of your life to Him. It means you have to crucify yourself with Jesus so that your identity and your agenda for life and your hopes for life are all determined by Jesus and by the cross. It means you now get your identity. The deepest core of who you are is shaped by Jesus. You know, for most Americans, the core of who we are is shaped by what we can acquire or what we can achieve. And so what I possess and what I've accomplished, that's me. That, that's where I find my deepest identity. Jesus says, no, you've got to kill the old you. You have to deny yourself. You have to find the deepest core of who you are in my cross. See, Jesus here really gives us a paradox. He says, whoever desires to save his life will lose it. 
But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. See, without the cross, without losing your life to Jesus, what do you have? You've got yourself and you've got your self-salvation program. You're trying to save yourself. But if you try to save yourself, you're lost. So the only way to be saved is to lose yourself to Jesus and His kingdom. It's to give yourself up to Jesus and His kingdom. To let Jesus have control over you. To let Jesus have the reins, not just a part of your life, but of all of your life. The word here that Jesus uses for life is psyche. It describes your soul. It describes your selfhood. Again, if your sense of self is based on anything other than union with Jesus, it's all going to crumble. It's all going to fall apart. You don't have a strong enough glue to hold your life together when hard times come. And even if you were to gain the whole world, none of us would, but even if you were to gain the whole world, all the fame and popularity and status and money and power you could wish for, even if it all does seem to work out for you, if you don't build your life on Jesus, you're going to lose it all in the end. But by contrast, if you do build your life on Jesus, even if everything else is taken from you, even if your life is taken from you, you still win. Because you get eternal life in Jesus, in glory. That's His promise. Jesus here makes it clear. He's talking about an exchange, a kind of exchange rate. What will we trade for our lives? Will we barter for our lives? Or will we give everything up to Jesus? Think of all the bad trades people make, the bad deals. We cut the bad exchanges people make. Trading eternal life for just a little more money or just a little bit more pleasure. Trading acceptance with God for acceptance with man. Look, Jesus is saying here, you only get one life. What will you do with it? Whatever you could gain by living for yourself, it will all be lost in the end. It's just not worth it. It'd be taking a relative and short-term gain, but giving up absolute and long-term gain in the process. It's just not worth it. Relative short-term gain should not be traded for absolute eternal gain. It's just a bad trade to make. So what are we to do? We're to follow Jesus in the way of the cross. Understand, the cross doesn't just change your final destination from hell to heaven. It does do that. The cross does change your final destination. But the cross also changes the path you take to get there. The cross changes your route, your pathway. Once you were living for self, now you're dying to self. Once you lived this way for what you could acquire or accomplish on your own, now you live this way. The pattern of your life is shaped by the cross. The cross is, the cross is etched into your very life. But what empowers all of this? What empowers us to live this way? How do you take up your own cross? The only way you can find the strength to take up your own cross is by understanding what Jesus has done in taking up His cross for you. See, the cross really is the measure of God's love for you. 
The cross shows us the infinite, absolute love of God. Jesus loved us unto death. He gave up His life in order to save yours. He endured the curse so that you could be blessed. There's no greater love than that. On the cross, we see what it means for God to be loved. And when we come to understand the things of God, what do we do? We wrap ourselves up in that love. We bask in that love. We wrap ourselves up in the security and comfort and peace that that love brings. We let that love wash over us. Victor Hugo said, the greatest happiness in life is the conviction that we are loved, indeed loved for ourselves, or rather in spite of ourselves. On the cross, Jesus loves us for ourselves. Or we could say, Jesus loves us in spite of ourselves. Do you know that love? Do you know the love that God has for you manifested in the cross? Do you let that love conquer your fears and and conquer your insecurities and conquer your anxieties? See, when that love is turned loose in your life, that's what it does. There was a great Olympic diver who was once asked how he could perform so well under pressure. And he said, well, when I'm out on the edge of the board, I remind myself that my mother loves me, and then I dive. And that was the secret to his success. He reminded himself he was loved, and then he acted. And really, that's what the cross does for us here. I mean, a mother's love is great, okay? Certainly. And no offense to mothers, but we have an even greater love here in Jesus. We're loved with a greater love than any parent could have for his child. And so if you want to be able to keep your poise under pressure and, and endure trial while remaining faithful, you've got to know this love. You've got to cling to the cross. You've got to keep your eyes fixed on the cross. Because the cross reveals to us the deep things of God. The deep love. The infinitely deep love that God has for us. Let's pray together. Father, we do help. We do ask that You would help us. That You would help us to know the love You have revealed to us in the cross. That as we come to know the love revealed on the cross, that we would come to live cruciform lives ourselves. That we would share in the life of God. That we'd have communion with You, God. Oh Lord, we know that Jesus did not come to seize the kingdoms of this world. To, 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 to gain the kingdoms of this world by force. He came to gain them by laying down His life, by suffering and by dying. And we know the way that He lived should shape the way we live. And so we ask that You would help us to bear the cross that we might wear the crown. To endure the suffering of putting self to death, putting sin to death, so often sins that we cherish or find ourselves addicted to, help us to put those sins to death that we might know the everlasting glory that comes through the Gospel. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.